This week on Writers Inc. The, the sort of the corollary to that is pick the one you're most afraid of. And somehow that's sort of a, for me at least, it's a good concept to, to act as a kind of a compass to guide, you know. If I've got five crazy ideas and one of them really scares the shit out of me, uh, that's, that's the one I should do. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. What's new, man? Oh, not much. Just working. I'm trying to do an outline for the very first time, and I know I tell everybody never do an outline or that I don't, um, but Patterson is insisting that I try to write an outline for an idea that we've got. Um, so I'm, I'm working on it. Um, it's, it's a weird process because I keep finding myself, you know, trying to expand Yeah. like, like in his outlines, he may, you know, I can't go into a whole lot of detail, but he'll have like maybe one or two sentences that just kind of explain what the chapter is about. And I try to do that, but then, you know, I throw in like a little snippet of dialogue and I got (laughs) another character that's answering that character. Next thing you know, you're putting this in and putting that in, and I've got like four pages worth of stuff, you know, (laughs) instead. So I'm, I'm trying, um, and I also, it, it feels a lot like just trying to squeeze water from a rock. Um, yeah, cause my typical process is I'll, you know, I, I, I don't really outline. I've got a pretty good sense of, you know, my beginning, my middle and my end. Um, and when I get up each day, you know, I, as I write, I try to stop mid sentence. So I know what's coming next. And then when I go on my walk and I was you know, doing dishes, eating dinner, all that kind of stuff, my brain is just constantly working out, you know, like the next couple of chapters for that book. So in my head, I'm always just a little bit ahead of where I am on paper. Um, but with this, it, it feels like I'm just trying to put the entire thing down all at once. You know, some kind of, I'm, I'm forcing that process in a little, in, in, in a certain way. Um, some of it's good and some of it's bad. So I guess I'm just, I'm trying, trying to figure it out, but it, it's neat to try something a, a little different just to see how it goes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly what I'm, I'm doing uh, for the manuscript you're helping me with, you know, it's just writing dialogue only. Like it's, um, I, I'm enjoying it so far. Like it, it, you know what it's done? It's, it's taken a lot of pressure off me to come up with like the right phrase or the right word or the right setting description because it's just people talking and, right. and I like it. I like it so far, like so far so good. So I guess it's, it's, it's a good idea every once in a while to sort of question your own belief system or question your own process and try something a little different. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of this is, you know, it comes down to challenging yourself. I think that the, you know, if, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you're going to get bored with it. Now, see, you've got to change it up a little bit. And that reminds me, I was listening to the playback from the last week's episode and you had mentioned your, what was it, 10,000 word day or, or something yes. crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and on the playback, I realized that you said you dictated that. Yes. Um, it, are you using like Dragon Naturally Speaking or what did, what did you use for that? Yeah, I am. I have a PC and I forget which version of Dragon I have, but it's uh, it works really well with mine. And I've been using it on and off for a number of years and every time you exit out of the program, it gives you the option, like, do you want to train or, or scan or whatever it is? And I always mm-hmm. select that. So now I'm to the point where it's about 99% accurate. I mean, 
it gets everything I say, even things that like I slur or I, I sort of mispronounce, it gets. Um, and so I've, uh, I've been using that. I have a really good lav mic, so, so it's a nice, clean you know, pathway into the program. Uh, I, I'll vary it. Sometimes I look at the screen. Sometimes I'll get up and walk around as, as I'm doing it, and I kind of glance to make sure I'm kind of you know, ballparking the words I want to get. But mm -hmm. uh, it's, I've gone back and forth with it. I, I think for me right now, I find it's a whole lot easier when I'm doing first-person nonfiction than it is like third-person fiction. So. Yeah, I, I, I've got a, a couple of friends that use it and they, they all swear by it um, and they all have these crazy word count days, you know, yeah. 6,000 words, 10,000 words, you know, some of them hit 20 yeah. in, in, in a day. And, you know, I've, I've tried it. I just, I feel really weird talking to myself. <laughs> um, I mean, you, you've got like 200 podcasts, so you're, you're probably <laughs> used to it. Um, but I just, I've never been able to bring myself to, to quite do that. And for me, there's something about seeing the words actually on the page, you know, seeing yes. them as in, in that printed form, like I don't something about that. Like I, I know, you know, where like each sentence is supposed to go. Like yes. It just kind of feels right. I can kind of piece it together. Um, and I've tried dictating before and I find that, you know, you have to go back and do a lot of cleanup and, you know, turn it into, you know, an end book. Um, but at the same time, I mean, if you're able to put out those kind of word counts, it, it, it's definitely worth exploring. I, I think, um, do we have Kevin Anderson, I think coming up at some point? I think we do. Yeah. I think we have, all yeah, I, I know he's, He's a big fan of, of that. And I'd really like to hear what, what he has to say um, when it comes to dictating. But, you know, that, that, that it could be a game changer. I think if somebody's able to adapt and get to the point where they can do it, um, I, I think they could really increase their production. The key is just sticking with it long enough to get over the curve. That, that's, yeah. that's the hard part because I, I think for most people, at least the people I've talked to who have used it, it's, re it's really hard in the beginning. It's awkward and it's strange and it doesn't feel right. And you, you like you said, you have to clean up a lot of stuff. And for me, I had to go through three or four cycles of that. Like I would try it and I would get a little bit better and then I would get discouraged and I would quit. And then I would try it again. And this is like maybe the fourth or fifth time I've really gotten into it. And now at least for nonfiction, I feel like I can just turn it on, plug the mic in and just go. All right. And you're doing this in your office, like right here. Yeah. Nice, nice, yeah, nice quiet, clean environment. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I know Kevin, when he goes, he does it on walks, yes. um, which would be similar to what I'm doing. Um, so I'd be curious, like if, if you, cause I know you, you're trying to, you're running now or you're, you're getting outside and, and yeah. exercising it. I'd be curious what to see what would happen if you tried doing it while you were exercising, uh, yeah. just to see what the, the accuracy is like. Yeah. Um, cause yeah. for me, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm out on a five mile run every day. That's, you know, about an hour or an hour and a half or so that I'm outside. Like, so in my perfect world, if I could train myself to actually talk to myself while I'm out on that run. Uh, without sounding like, <laughs> you know, like this, because I am out on a run. Um, I, I think it would be worthwhile. I'll use you as a guinea pig. I kind of want to see. Yeah, how this works I'll try it. I mean, I'm going to, I can definitely, try, I don't know about running, but with, because like you said, you know, you're breathing heavy, but uh, for walking for sure. Like I, I don't, um, I, like I know that the dragon app, the dragon anywhere would, would be great for you. I think what mm -hmm. I might end up doing is I have like a little personal recorder. I might just record it and then I can, I can import the audio file into my, my dragon on my PC and have it, have it translate. Um, oh, okay. So I, I might try that because on, on a walk, at least, um, you know, I'm not breathing heavy and I can, I can kind of think. So I'll report yeah. back once the weather warms up enough that I can do that on a regular basis. 
Yeah, we're, we're getting there. I was out yesterday in, in short sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it, it's weird, like walking for me and running right now on, on our island, like it almost feels like I'm in a video game you know, because you, you don't come across people too often, but when you do, it's like you try to avoid them. Yeah, so yeah you, cross you, the street. You, yeah, cross the street. or you're, it's, like, it's, it's like this three-dimensional version of Frogger or yes. something. <laughs> um, yeah, some people are, I'm, I'm seeing a lot more people like out, out there walking and running with masks on. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if that's counterproductive or not because like, it's crazy hard to breathe if you've got a mask on. They've actually, they make runners masks that do that. They'll limit the amount of oxygen your, your body is taking in to try and make your, your body more stronger. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but it just, just seems to me like you'd be catching a lot of, you know, like a lot, not necessarily viruses, but it seems like you're trapping a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, like I, I like getting out in the fresh air. That's one of the reasons why I do it. Right. And, like, you know, now all of a sudden, if you're doing it with a mask on, who knows? Yeah. Um, but that's the world we're in, I guess. Right yeah. Now, so. Yeah, it is. <laughs> hey, there, there's something else kind of moving through the the publishing world right now that we wanted to touch upon. You brought it up a few weeks ago, and it's it's still this controversy is still around. It has to do with the Internet Archives Emergency Library. Uh, oh. For those who are following that story, about two days ago, the the attorneys for the Internet Archive defended themselves and said that they're they're putting these free versions of books out as under fair use. So where do you stand on this? <laughs> it's kind of a loaded question, but dude, I, I, I don't use the word hate a whole lot. Um, but you know, when you've got somebody that's essentially stealing from authors, you know, that, that, that definitely conjures up that, that H word. Um, and when you involve attorneys that, that just doubles down on it, I think. Um, here, here's, here's the thing, like they're, they're using the fact that libraries are closed right now as their basis for, for doing this. And, um, that's not necessarily true because a lot of libraries already have ebook lending programs right. in place. Um, you know, Overdrive is probably one of the biggest ones. Um, and, and, you know, for a book to be in, in Overdrive or through the library's uh, ebook lending program, that library has to purchase a copy of it. Um, they're only allowed to let basically one person, you know, borrow that book at a time, no different than a print book. And if they've got high demand, then they buy more, multiple copies. Um, you know, so I, and they also limit, um, like you can only register for overdrive with your local library. Um, so you can't register in some other country or, you know, some other city or whatever, to, you know, um, that might have more copies of, of books than, than another one. You're, you're stuck to your locale. So it, it's very similar to, to borrowing a book from that library. And I'm totally cool with that. I, I love the fact that people can, can borrow ebooks and, you know, we can cut back on the paper and it gives the library a chance to, to get a lot more titles than they could probably hold. Like our library here on the island is, is tiny. Um, you know, they've, they've only got the physical space to hold so many books, but because they're part of Overdrive, you know, they still got access to everything else. Um, so that system, I think, is, is great. Um, where the Internet Archive Library is, has gone wrong is when physical libraries close, they basically said, OK, well, we're going to keep lending, but we're going to remove our limits. Um, so they're basically if they've got a copy of the book and, you know, or they've got you know, one copy of a book or five copies of a book, but a thousand people want that, they're letting a thousand people borrow it. And that's problematic. Um, I mean, this is going to end up shaking out in the courts, I think, it's, and it's going to, you know, def hopefully define where this type of thing goes in the future. I mean, they had similar issues with music, you know, back in the 90s. Um, so we're going to have to see how it plays out. But at, at this point, I mean, if they're lending out stuff that they haven't paid for, um, they're stealing. Um, you know, I, and I, I've been kind of going back and forth with them for years. I, I've got a, a reminder set up on my computer where I just go in and I search for my name and my own title once a month. Um, just to see if anything's on there. And if it's on there, I send them a takedown notice immediately just because I'm just not comfortable with the, the setup that they've got. Um, and I've got an email address for one particular person that does this. And I, I send it over to you if you want to put it in the show notes. Yeah, you know, any of our listeners, they're, they're, they're you know, free to use it. Um, this guy will probably hate me um, for, <laughs> for doing it. But you know, at the same time, like, you know, they shouldn't be doing 
doing this without getting permission from the proper people and, and going through the you know the proper channels Us using the virus and the, the, the current situation in the world as an excuse to try and push the limits of what they're allowed to do uh, no I, I, can't, I can't hang with that so what, whatever we need to do to shut it down at this point I think as authors we should do it um, that being said I, a large part of me doesn't even like to talk about it because the more yeah. we talk about it you know for every author out there that's listening writing down this email address going okay I'm going to get my books down there's 10 other people going hey I can get free books um, right you know but you have to you have to think about the flip side of that you know you're, you're you're really hurting the people that are creating those things just like Napster did back in the day with music well um, and it's it's totally cutting into the the newer sort of pay per checkout model that overdrive and and the other distributors were trying to get into libraries so that sort of a new method of distribution is the library will will pay the author for every checkout so in this case if they check your book out to a thousand people you get whatever percentage of all thousand transactions and this this bypasses that completely that it would kill it i would think yeah and they're also they're they're digitizing copies you know so if somebody donates a physical copy of a book they're digitizing it and making it available as an ebook um which again is you know that you're Technically, in my eyes, they're breaking the licensing agreement by doing that. But, you know, it's no different than what's going on right now with, um, I guess it's either Audible or Google. One of those guys are using artificial intelligence now to read print books. Um, and, and the audiobook community is fighting back because if they do that now, all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's infringing on that particular license. Um, so we'll have to see how that shakes out. Uh, I've seen a lot of contracts just adapt to deal with this kind of thing, you know, where they, they're just very, very broad now trying to encompass things that haven't been created yet. Um, which, which is both good and bad from an author standpoint. Um, but it, you know, it, it kind of reinforces the fact that as an author, before you sign anything, you should have an actual attorney look at it. Um, because what used to be a very simple game, you know, I, I write words, you print the words and you give them to people has changed dramatically yeah. over the last 15, 20, 30 years. Yep. Yep. Good point. So yeah, we'll have that. Uh, we'll have your friend's we'll have email address in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll post all the death threats up on my website when he <laughs> when he finds out that we did this. But um, yeah, I, 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 they need to stop. They they need to follow the rules, and it, you know if this helps that happen, I, I think we need to do it too. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. So are we uh, ready to get into the interview for this week? It's an interesting one. We are. Um, why don't you introduce these guys? Because they're. You did this a while back. Yeah, as I mentioned last week, uh, if you if you weren't tuning in, uh, essentially what happened was I interviewed uh, Stephen Pressfield and Sean Coyne for a project, and about, it was about a year ago, so it's a relatively recent interview. But it was a very focused interview. I, I essentially asked them one question each, and uh, but it was so valuable. I went to Sean and I said, "Hey, we'd love to have this on the Writers Inc. podcast. Are you all right with that?" And they're like, and he said, "Yeah, go for it." So, uh, so you're, you're going to hear, you're going to hear what's a little bit different. A couple things. Um, it's, it's a little more challenging to do a three person interview than, than two per two people. So, uh, the audio might sound a little different than it normally does because that's just, you know, the nature of it. you got three voices instead of two. And, uh, and because it wasn't necessarily for a podcast, the guys let loose with a, with a few, uh, <laughs> F bombs. And, uh, <laughs> and I think so far we, we've stayed pretty uh, above board on that and i i was like you know what uh, i'm just gonna bleep those out so that we don't offend anybody <laughs> well we, we haven't actually talked about that you know like we, we could obviously say whatever we want on here but you know i'm so used to having the toddler around the house that my wife and i police each other you know pretty pretty rigidly so yeah, yeah. Where, where i used to drop an f-bomb you know pretty regularly i, I don't do it anymore but, yeah um, yeah at some point i guess we, we need to figure out whether f-bombs are allowed on, on the podcast or, or well not. see they they are and this is a 
this is a bit of a tangent, but it, but it's uh, interesting. Uh, if you if you have f bombs, you have to put the check the the profanity box on the, on your podcast distribution. Now, for oh. for a lot of people, that doesn't matter. For some people, it does. But it also prevents some international distribution because there are some countries that will will block any podcasts that have that explicit language box checked. So <laughs> it does matter. Like, uh, and and I think like you know, as I said, like I don't, I didn't necessarily want to just open that that can of worms right now for this particular interview, and it's something we could talk about later. But yeah, if if you do have that language on there and you check that box, then it could hurt distribution uh, internationally. And I, I, I don't know if we talked about this, but when Fourth Monkey first came out, um, it got coded on the Amazon site as an animal cozy, um, an animal cozy <laughs> mystery because of the, the title. Um, and and I, I dropped some you know f bombs, uh, a couple a couple of choice words in the very first chapter. I mean, yeah. it's cops. Cops swear they use a lot of that that kind of language. Right. Um, and if you read some of my very first reviews, you know it's it's like little old ladies with a cat in their lap, you know, reading what they think yes. is going to be a, an animal cozy mystery <laughs> and writing into profanity. Oh my God, he used naughty <laughs> words. Um, yeah. So like my first 10, 20 reviews or something on Amazon are, are all like that. And then my publisher got the, the metadata squared away and finally got <laughs> in the right categories. But um, yeah, you got, there are people out there that will, they'll close a book. Yeah. You know, if, if, if it's got that, you know, that word in there, if you use it too often. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, you know, you got to consider that kind of stuff. But anyways, uh, you know, the, the conversation with, with, uh, with Pressfield and Coin is, is coming up here. So we'll go ahead and, and listen to it and then uh, we'll come out got on the flip side and talk a little more about it. So, okay, here we go. Maybe we'll start with Steve and then we can go to Sean. I, I really sort of have one big question for each of you. And it's, a, it's one that comes up over and over again when I'm working with uh, authors and even in my own work. And it's funny because I, I, uh, I realized that, Steve, this was one of your blog posts from uh, last month where you were, uh, where you were uh, taking shots of poor old Dick Rowe for passing on the Beatles. <laughs> but uh, I'm curious as to, um, obviously the blog post is about you know, picking your craziest idea. So I'm curious, you know, uh, maybe to sort of expand on that, how do you determine if an idea is crazy? And then what if you have 15 crazy ideas? Uh, sort, of, sort of what's your thought process behind that approach? Um, it's actually, I just actually, I just was writing another post just like two minutes ago. And it actually goes very deep. This whole concept goes very deep. When I would say craziest, what I sort of mean is not obviously commercial. Mm. You know, okay. right? Or not something that you think uh, you're trying to sort of second guess the market, right? Right. Uh, right. And but also craziest in the sense of something that uh, doesn't necessarily feel like it's really you, mm. quote unquote mm. you. Um, it's like, uh, wow, why should I write that book? You know. Mm. Uh, a book about Queen Baudica of, you know, um, and the, 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 the whole idea behind that is that the muse or whatever that second level of, of unconscious thing, thing is, doesn't operate by the same rules that of rationality, yeah. you know, she has her, or the goddess has her own agenda for us. And, uh, so when we pick something that seems quote unquote crazy to us, we may really be picking 
the absolute right thing to do. And I sort of go back to, like in the blog post, I mentioned my own books, The Legend of Bagger Vance and Gates of Fire, my first two books, that if you think about those ideas from the jump, you know, uh, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, why don't I write a mystical golf novel? That looks like a winner. Or a story about a battle that nobody's ever heard of, you know, from 2,500 years ago. Uh, to me, that was, both of those ideas sounded completely nutty, particularly since I really didn't know about either of them. But they worked. So sort of for that, for me, I kind of say, well, maybe I'm not so smart after all. And so that's sort of the whole the whole concept to, to go. You want to go? Want me to go a little bit deeper, James? Sure, sure. <laughs> this is the um, Sean. This Sean. This goes back to tides of war. Yeah. Um, there was a real life character, James, in the ancient world called Al named Alcibiades, mm -hmm. who was an Athenian general. And he really was sort of a predecessor of Alexander the Great, a kind of a doomed predecessor, but cut from the same mold. And both of them kind of operated under the philosophy of fortune favors the bold. Mm -hmm. And particularly Alexander, <clears throat> he used to, on his great horse, Bucephalus, he used to lead the charge into the enemy lines, the head of everyone in the army with a double-plumed helmet so that everybody could see who he was, so that like every arrow and lance <laughs> of the enemy was coming right at him. But he was doing that because he really, he believed that fortune favors the bold and that by taking such an action, not, uh, you know, the gods would follow him. And of course, in the real world, his army would follow him. Right. You know, if they saw their king going in there, they go, well, I can't stand around, I gotta charge right after him. So I think that, when a writer, you and I as writers are thinking about a project, we're like Alexander. Mm. And we have to get on that horse and and charge right into the teeth of the enemy. Mm. And that that, I mean, the, 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 the Alexander and Alcibiades and certain other ancient commanders really believed, that, I mean, they really believed in the gods. They believed in the Olympian gods that they were watching overhead. And they felt that they could compel the gods' intercession by their own boldness. Mm. It's really sort of like Field of Dreams. You know, if you build it, he will come. Yeah. Right? Um, and I think when people saw that movie, you know, and they heard that line said that Kevin Costner, he heard it in his head, right? We all sort of felt there's some truth to that, isn't that? You know, if, we, if he's crazy enough to build this baseball field in the middle of Iowa, somebody who doesn't know who he is will come. And of course, you know, in the movie, at least he did. Yeah. So that's kind of the underlying, I think, metaphysical architecture or metaphysical laws that, that govern that idea of pick the craziest idea or pick your most ambitious project. Hmm. And okay. so another way of saying that, like if, if somebody says, oh, I've got a lot of ambitious projects right. yeah. in my head, the, the sort of the corollary to that is pick the one you're most afraid of. Hmm. And somehow that's sort of a, for me at least, it's a good concept to, to act as a kind of a compass to guide you, you know? If I've got five crazy ideas and one of them really scares the shit out of me, uh, that's, that's the one I should do. Like, Sean knows that it, he's been working with a guy named Mike McClellan. Maybe you know about this guy. 
who wrote uh, a, a book called The Sand Sea. And um, it's this giant enterprise, like the size of Game of Thrones, oh. you know, just about. And God bless him. You know, he's a working lawyer with two kids. He, you know, would get up every morning and do an hour, you know, every day for like 800 days. And I think it really worked. Mm. So anyway, that's that's my my long answer to that, James. <laughs> oh, I, I love it. And I'm wondering if, uh, is it possible when you're looking at all of these crazy ideas that the process of deciding which one to charge into battle with becomes a form of, re of resistance. Uh, well, certainly, I'm not, I'm not say that again. Rephrase that for me because I'm sure. not sure exactly what you mean. So, if um, if a writer is in a position where they have these uh, a bucket full of crazy ideas, but it's taking a long time, however that person might define it, to make a decision on which one to charge into battle with, could that e extrapolated process be a form of resistance? Oh, definitely, for sure, absolutely, and that resistance will go away the instant they pick so, the project. So, so making that decision, even if you're not 100% confident that it's the, the craziest, is still better than not making the decision at all. Yeah, I, I think so. Okay. But resistance will also try to confuse you and go, oh, well, maybe this one's really the craziest, mm -hmm. or this one's really the craziest. And I think then you just have to sort of trust your instincts and, you know, kind of go with, you know, whatever it is that makes you make a decision. Yeah. But those other, those other sort of voices in your head that are saying, oh, maybe number B is the craziest or maybe numbers, those, that's pure resistance. Yeah. Resistance trying to f*** you up, you know? Yep. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Uh, okay. Sean, I, um, I know that you, you sort of write and edit in a different capacity, but I'm sure you have the same battle on, you know, which idea to pick. So I'm curious to hear what your thought process is behind that. Well, I would, I would uh, absolutely back up that every, everything that Steve says. And for me, <clears throat> just, just to give you sort of an example of a project personally, that, like the one that Steve's talking about, I don't know, about three and a half years ago, actually about 10 years ago, I met a brain surgeon. And there was something about this guy that was really intriguing to me because the concept of brain surgery to me is the operating at the limits of your capacity when you've got damnation and the fate worse than death at play every single time you're maneuvering your fingers. Mm. So brain surgery itself to me is a fascinating profession because you're, you are literally facing the fate worse than death every time. You make one small move and you paralyze somebody for life and you, you can really you can kill them or you can make their lives miserable and i always wonder what how do these guys how do these guys operate and how do they summon the courage to go inside those brains day after day after day and so i met this guy believe it or not through a con uh through a connection from steve uh i was uh, meeting with somebody at west point who was running uh, a human potential project and he works with cadets. So I went up to see him, and then this brain surgeon shows up. Okay, flash forward, four years later, nothing ever happens of that whole project. Uh, and the brain surgeon sends me an email and says, look, I'm, I, I'm at my wit's end. I put together this project. What do you think? And I read his proposal, and it wasn't all that great. <laughs> but 
the concept kept sitting with me for four years. And some, for some wild reason, my brain, that muse said, lock this guy in. This is a guy you need to work with. This is somebody you need to work with for years. And I threw caution to the wind. I told him, look, I don't know what's going to happen from this thing, but I'll work with you. Let's figure out some sort of project. So for the past four years, I've been working on the concept of what cognitive science can do for you to get you to raise the courage to face these problems and to pick these projects like Steve's talking about. How do you listen to the muse? How do you raise that sort of inner strength to do that? And it's taken me down all these incredibly wild turns, uh, you know, all is lost moments. I want to quit on this f-ing thing so many times. And yet, and I just keep going back to like Steve says, just listen to what the inner voice is telling you. And, you know, he wants the book done. He wants to get this thing published. He wants it out tomorrow because it's more or less a calling card for him. Mm-hmm. For me, it's more an exploration of some of the things that I've been exploring my entire life. So the way I've sort of been inspired by Steve is by taking that project on, even though, even though I knew it was a freaking rap <laughs> and it was gonna, <laughs> it was really gonna take me in places that I really did not want to go. And you know, by the way, it's not even done yet. Oh wow! Uh, you know, and I keep. I keep saying it's going to be done in three months. It's going to be done in three months. And I could grind it and fix it and finish it in three months. But something keeps telling me it's not quite done yet. You still need to sit with this. So it's like that daily process. I wake up with it. I give it an hour. I give it a two hours until I can't do anymore. And then I keep moving on. And these are the, these are the projects that really bring the meaning in your life. The ones that you're not sure why you're doing it. They're, they're painful moments, and yet you keep doing it over and over again. And it's listening to, you know, when you come down right down to it, who the f*** is putting those ideas in our heads anyway, <laughs> right? I'm certainly, I, I really didn't know anything about brain surgery. So why was I compelled to go there? Um, and... I agree with Steve. I think there's some metaphysical force that is compelling us to take actions beyond our own selfish needs and wants. Hmm. So, um, you know, all I'm doing is reiterating what Steve said. Um, but you know, it, it are, it, those moments when you really, really want to throw in the towel, that's when resistance is kicking you in the head. And so feel that and say, oh, I get it. This is that who's trying to get me to stop. So I'll just, I'll just do one more day. You know, it's like, it's almost like the alcoholic. I'm not going to drink today. Maybe I'll drink tomorrow, but I'm not going to drink today. And it's the same thing with resistance. Okay. Maybe I'll quit tomorrow, but I'm not going to quit today. And, um, that's the way I think you can, you beat that thing and, Again, it goes to with Steve's work. As long as you don't say to yourself, when am I going to get the gold at the end of the rainbow? Because mm. that'll kill anything. 
once it's like uh, Quincy Jones once said, when money walks into the recording studio, you know, everything is dead. It's gone. It's over. You, you might as well close up shop. Once stop, people start talking about the money payoff. All the magic is gone. Mm. So do you, Sean, do you look back at, at your own track record and do you say, you know, previously I picked this crazy idea and, uh, and, it, and it paid off or it didn't pay off? Does that influence your, your future decisions? Well, the beauty of it is, you know, you're you're crazy and you're an artist when when something hits you, all those shitty decisions that you made before completely vanish in your head. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I would say I probably am batting 50 50, you know, 50 percent of the, the things I take on. And I don't mean that they're commercially successful. I mean, they reach their closing point. And then it's up to the gods whether or not mm -hmm. they work or not. But uh, and then 50 percent don't. They they the relationship is destroyed with the people that I've worked before because we've we've ripped each other's throats out trying to make something come to life. But um, you when you know you just know it's like what compelled you, James, to sort of leave your profession to, to start a brand new business and a brand new profession. You just deep down knew, oh shit, I know I have to do this. Yeah, there's no but rational just, reason for it. Yeah, you just, kind of, you just kind of said, well, I'm just gonna do it and whatever shakes out is gonna shake out. Um, and that's a, that's a really difficult thing to come to terms with. But once you do, you know, then it's just hard work. You know, then it's just grinding your ass in the dirt, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, man, those are so such good advice. Do, do either of you have any sort of um, any sort of final recommendations or, or suggestions for people who are, you know, in the throes of this this battle with uh, with resistance or trying to come up with the, the best crazy idea? Uh, no. <laughs> 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 that says a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say is try not to make your, your life so precious that you can't, you know, throw mm. something away. Yeah. You know, for all this struggle that I've been going through on the project, I still get great pleasure from it. And I learn something new every day. If I'm just sort of beating my head against the wall and being miserable to everyone around me, you know, it's okay to throw something like that away because it's probably driving you crazy. All right. So that is uh, Stephen Pressfield and Sean Coyne. I, I have to admit, uh, I, I had, um, you know, I've worked with, with Sean for a number of years, but this was the first time I had a chance to talk to Steve and I was a little bit of a fanboy. It was, it was hard for me to focus on this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the one thing they threw out there is, is pick the idea you're most afraid of. Um, that really resonated with me because I, I see a lot of first-time writers, they, they write the idea that they're comfortable with, you know, and, and people tell you that, right, right, what you know, you know, pull from your real life, things like that. Um, but in a lot of ways, that, that's boring. And I think if, if 
the idea is easy to put down on paper. It's not going to resonate well with, with readers. I think they're going to, they're going to get bored with the story. It's those harder ideas, the ones that nobody can write. Those are the ones that, that tend to do well. Um, so definitely challenge yourself. Um, and it brought back a, a memory from and I'm, I, I'm always quoting Stephen King here, and I can't remember if it was from on writing or dance macabre, but he mentioned that he tends to, you know, keep track of all his various ideas all in his head. He doesn't write any of them down. He feels that if it's a good enough idea, he's going to, he won't forget it. Right. Um, which is probably, which is probably true. Um, but he said most of his books tend to be a mashup of, of multiple ideas. You know, he's got this one good idea and this one good idea and they're okay by themselves. But when you take them and you put them together, that's when you end up with gold. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind when you're when you're fishing for that next story. Yeah, yeah. I, I also thought it was really interesting how Stephen talked about resistance being greatest right before you make the decision, and and that resistance will try and talk you out of picking that craziest idea and tell you like, oh, that's not going to work, or you can't pull that off. And uh, uh, it really it really made me think about some of the projects I had in the works, and like, wh- should those be the ones that I'm I'm working on? Yeah. And even, even as you're writing, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm pantsing a novel, you know, I I tend to write myself into a lot of corners. Um, but those are the things that the readers like, you know, if you put your character into a very difficult position and you can figure out how to get that character out of that position, um, that that's, that's strong. Um, you know, but sometimes it backfires. Sometimes there is no way out, you know, and you end up spending a couple of days or a week, you know, trying to find that way out and it's just not there. But um, I, I think that's definitely worthwhile. I mean, anytime you take the, the easy way out, you know, in anything in life, um, you, you get what you pay for, you know. So I, I know you're a guy who has always has a lot of stuff going on. You're, you work on multiple projects in different ways with different people. How do you decide what project is next for you? Um, well, it's changed a lot over the last couple of years um, since I started selling to the, the publishers. Um, but I, I, I have to write my ideas down. You know, <laughs> um, Steve can try to remember everything if he wants to, but I need to put them down on paper somewhere. I, I use a program called Simple Note, uh, and I and I just create a, a text document for each idea I have. And you know, if I get snippets of ideas that belong with that idea, and then I'll add to it. Um, and I've got I don't even know how many at this point, probably fifty to hundred different, you know books in various stages on, on that, that system. Um, now, when I go to my agent, I, I've got a PDF document that I've created that has like my 10 favorites. Uh, and and it's, I try to keep the range on it fairly wide. Um, and I'll create uh, basically the backup book blurb for, for 10 different ideas that are in those simple note documents. And I talk to her about it and we kind of decide which ones we like and which ones we don't like and fine tune that list. And then that's the list that she takes out to my editors at the publishers. Um, and then together we all kind of decide, you know, what, what's the next book. Um, and that's not even a decision the editor makes by himself. I mean, he's, he, he or she, they're reaching out to their marketing people. You know, what, right. what book do you think is going to be the best marketable project, you know, a year and a half, two years from now? Um, you know, so I've got a, a number of people that are involved in that, that process now, but th- that being said, like the 10 or so ideas that end up in a PDF document, they're only there because I really, really want to write them. Um, you know, if it's an idea that, you know, I think is good, but it's not something my heart's in, I, I just won't put it there. I, I don't share it with anybody. And, you know, you know, and a lot of times that changes something that you're real passionate about today, you know, a month from now, you may not be, or a year from now, um, but I always try to try to focus on the ones that I really, really want to put, you know, the ones, the ones that are nagging at me to, to get written. Those are the ones that end up in that document. Is the process the same for your self-published books? Yeah. I mean, cause right now I'm, I'm using self-publishing more as a means to, to hit uh, publication dates. Um, cause you can't, when you work with somebody like Random House or HMH or any of these big guys, HarperCollins, um, they, they tell you when your publication date is, you've got zero say in it. 
Um, and, and it's different, you know, in different countries and things like that. Um, UK and US and Canada tend to coordinate a little bit and try to put it out on the same day. But otherwise, you know, books could be coming out two or three years later in other places. Um, but I've got a production schedule on my computer. So I know what dates my books are coming out. And if I see a, a void, you know, like if I don't have a book coming out for eight months between, um, I'll self-publish a title and try. I, I, my goal is to try and stay in front of my readers at least every six months with something, um, whether it's a collaboration, whether it's something I'm putting out through a, one of the big publishers um, and if or a self-published title. Um, and right now, like those lines, you know, we've talked about it. It's getting so blurry, like you really can't tell anymore where it's coming from. Um, and honestly, now that I've, I've got an agreement in place with Baker and Taylor that, that filled the gap on the library side, because um, libraries tend to buy books um, either from Ingram Spark or Baker and Taylor. It's, it's one or the other. Um, and a lot of that comes down to the librarian's preference. You know, they, they've got a particular system they like and they stick with it. Um, so being in both of those platforms, my books are available everywhere, you know, as a self-published author, just as they would be, you know, through HarperCollins. Um, there's, there's no difference anymore. Mm -hmm. But that, that list, that PDF document you're talking about, if, if it's a self-published book, uh, I'm assuming you're not discussing that, those ideas with your agent, are you? Yeah. I, oh, you are? Well, okay. I mean, if, if I'm writing it and I know it's going to come out as self-published, um, it would be different. But, you know, for the most part, like I've got a book that I just sent off to her, the one we've talked about on the air a couple of times where I redid the ending. Um, you know, it's sitting on her desk right now. And, you know, she sent me probably five emails in the last couple of weeks going, well, is the timing right? Like, do we really want to do this right now? Um, because there's, you know, if you read Publishers Weekly, you know, agents and editors, everything is just up in the air. Nobody knows what's really going on. Yeah. Um, you know, so, but I, I still want that, you know, the book is done, you know, it's in the can. So I, I want to get it out there. So depending on what happens, you know, she, she's going to take it out and shop it. We've already got the date and everything set where she's going to go out with it. Um, depending on the feedback, you know, if the advance, advance money is not there, or if we can't get a deal that that seems attractive, I'll put it out on my own. Um, you know, there's, there's no reason not to just to, to keep that pipeline moving. I'll, I'll have another book done in another three or four months, you know, so just got to keep the machine going. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So the, the ideation process is the same. It's just what you do with it after yeah. is what we're okay. Okay. Yeah. Like I, I know which book my editor wants me to write next. And if it's not the same as the book that I would like to write next, um, you know, I may try and do two at a time. That's one of the reasons why I'm really playing with this outline idea with, with Patterson, because I, I am finding that if I write a book based on an outline, um, it frees up a lot of creative space in my head where I could do that like in the morning and then I could brainstorm an outline or an idea for a second book in the afternoon. So I can right. efficiently write two different books at the same time. Um, so that's kind of where I'm going because I, I've tried physically writing two books at the same time and I know I can do it, but if, if I'm creatively trying to think about what comes next in two different books, yeah. um, it, it becomes too much of a strain. But if I'm just writing one, you know, it's more or less paid by numbers if you've got an outline in place. Um, and then you can put all that creative energy into the second one, which allows you know, at least me to, to work on two at the same time. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, you're, you're definitely gonna have to keep us up to date on that on the whole outline process. Uh, I'm yeah. curious as a pure pantser to see see where you end up. But I think the key is I'm gonna have to start dictating my outline with Dragon <laughs> Naturally Speaking. There you go. <laughs> that that might work, right? It, it might. You never yeah, know. Yeah, because you don't have to worry about you know sentence structure or anything like that. You can just kind of riff away and see what happens. Yep. Oh, <laughs> uh, nice. All right, man. Well, we got a. Uh, we got a great, great guest lined up next week. You want to introduce him or tease him, I should say? Yeah, it's it's David Baldacci. Um, it's it's somebody when uh, Forsaken was first coming out, uh, he was he did a library talk in Swickley on Pennsylvania, which was about 15 miles from our, our house where we lived um, outside of Pittsburgh. Um, so we went to go and see him, and I, I basically hit him up for a blurb, um, which I never did get. 
Um, but I've been, I'm, I'm still chasing him. Like in pretty much every book that comes out, I, I send it off to his assistant. But he's he's one of those guys. That's, he's just always busy. Like I think last year he he put out three or four books, or he, had, he was obligated to do three or four all you know in one year. Uh, you know that's obviously a lot. So ask somebody to read on top of that is is tricky. Um, but a very nice guy to talk to. He's got some cool stories. Um, I I know he's a firm believer in trying things before he puts them in books. So he's. He's jumped out of airplanes. He shot guns, um, things, things along those lines. Um, David Morell is another one who's just very into that. Um, he, he actually, he spent, a, a, I think, 30 some days in the mountains, um, you know, basically just living off the land just to see if he could do it. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I love those kind of guys and they've always got a lot of stories. And I'm sure David's got some really good ones. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, he's also, his masterclass is fantastic. If anyone's got a subscription to masterclass, uh, his came out, I think, this past year. It's relatively new, but it's it's a fantastic study on mystery, thriller, suspense, especially. So I'd highly recommend that if if uh, people have that subscription. Yeah, there's an annual subscription you can get for MasterClass, and it's it's definitely worth it. Like when I, I haven't subscribed for a while, and I think back when I did it, um, Patterson was out there, and I think just one other author at the time. And and now there's there's quite a few. Yeah. Um, so it's it's worth it. I mean, even if you you know if, if you if you can do the annual thing, then just kind of binge, um, you know, binge for a month or whatever you need to do. But um, check those out because uh, there's a lot of valuable information there. Yeah. So Dan Brown and Neil Gaiman, you better look out because Writers Inc is yeah. coming to get you. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Brown was actually the other one that I did. It was James Patterson and, and Dan Brown. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I saw the advertisement for Neil Gaiman, but I haven't listened to that one yet. Yeah. Uh, cool. All right, man. Uh, well, that, that should be a, a nice wrap for this episode. So uh, to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.